You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show. For lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction, join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley. And Darcy Fournier. Our guest today gave her life to Jesus at the age of six. She knew at an early age that God was calling her to ministry. Writing for Him has allowed her to offer the gospel message and encourage people to hope in the Lord. Her motto in writing, as well as all other aspects of life, is Soli Deo Gloria. For God alone, the glory, often called the queen of historical Christian fiction, Tracy Peterson, is an ECPA, CBA, and USA Today bestselling author of more than 110 books, most of those historical. So Tracy, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Thank you for having me. This is going to be great. I am so excited to interview with you. 110 books. I just have to stop there for a minute because, wow, you are well established in the Christian book market. Seems a little bit of an understatement. I don't know how you've written that. (laughs) That's so cool. I actually just turned in book 132. So well ahead of 110. (laughs) Awesome. That's so cool. So many stories. But when not writing, which you must be doing almost constantly, what do you do for fun? Oh, for fun, I like to quilt, and I am a voracious reader, have been since I was a little bitty, and so that's still such a great pleasure. I'm often saying that I hope heaven has a library (laughs) that we can check out books and read, but yeah, I like to quilt. I've got quite a few friends here in the local area that are helping me. I'm not very far along in quilting. And so these wonderful ladies in my area have been helping me to learn things. And I just find it really relaxing and fun and yet creative. So that's what I do. And quilting is such a unique tradition to hand down. I love quilting. I'm not able to do it as much as I used to. But when my kids were younger, I had collected some of their baby clothes and baby blankets. And I was able to make quilts for all of them just from those little pieces of fabric. And those they were just really special to like commemorate those ages. Oh, that's awesome. They were so young. And so we keep those. And yeah, it's really... Really unique. I think that's so neat, though, that you took the pieces from your baby clothes. That is just precious. And what a legacy to pass down. Well, I hope they do. I'm storing them. So we'll take them out when they're when they're a little older. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, you probably get this question a lot. But what advice might you give to authors who are just breaking out to the business? Pray. Uh- <laughs> Publishing is such a wacky world right now. I've been in it for 30 years and actually watched it prior to that. And it just seems that publishing is in a such a different place than when I started. When I started, it was traditional publishing and the self-publishing was frowned upon and looked down on. And now, of course, we know a lot of writers who have great names for their, have built up and are well-respected, do self-publishing. But networking is critical. I think getting together with other authors, participating in writer groups. I helped to found the American Christian Fiction Writers Group, the ACFW, and it's an amazing national organization that reaches out to 
authors and helps them in so many ways. And I always encourage new authors to seek them out and see how they might benefit from the wisdom and knowledge of these wonderful people who have volunteered their time to help teach. And there are online workshops, there are critique groups you can join. And every year they have a conference, whether it's during the COVID years, we had the the video conferences and whatnot. But this year they're actually going to meet in person. And you can get information about them at acfw.com. But any kind of networking is so valuable because you you tend to feel very alone sometimes as a writer because you're sitting in your office working and there's no one else. I've been blessed over the years that I have worked with my husband. He's a historian and he did a lot of research for me on different books. And I can go to him and we could sit down and brainstorm. We can talk about what events I want to cover or what might be happening at a certain time period. And he's right there with valuable information. If he doesn't know it, he goes and looks it up and it's just been a wonderful way to write. But not everybody has that. And so it's good to network and be able to connect with other authors that you can pick their brain, you can talk to them about problems you're having, issues that you would like to know more about and so forth. So that I think is the most important advice I can offer. I know that for me, I have grown the most by interacting and sharing tips and just receiving so much from other writers. I agree. Totally. And it's so nice that ACFW, they have so many ways to connect online. I know their conference is taking place this September on starting on the 8th, and that'll be at the Hyatt uh, Regency at the Arc in St. Louis, Missouri. But they also have like the on- so many online groups. They even have regional groups that meet in person and online. And so for young writers that are just getting out, like y- you really are not alone. And it's so important to connect with other Christian writers and not just to get feedback on what you're working on, but to keep you just to keep you going and like to continue edifying you and helping you stay focused on the call that God's placed on your life as a Christian writer. And also, I know that a lot of times as you give of yourself and fill up someone else's cup, you're also receiving in that process. There's a lot of give and take that we've experienced actually with ACFW groups that both Darcy and I have been a part of. And it's really is an amazing group. And I'm glad to hear that as a co-founder. It's really important to me to have seen the direction that group has gone and the way that they have grown. I don't get to be involved very often, but my heart was that we would create a, a Christian organization to encourage each other and to really be there for each other in times of need and trouble and whatnot. And I've known many times when authors have lost loved ones or had tragedies happen, and the group has rallied beautifully around them. So this is more than just a writing organization. This is a spiritual, heartfelt family that really believes in each other and helps to refocus on the Lord and on how to edify one another as well as bring God glory. Absolutely. it's. I know it's been a huge blessing to me. And that's so cool that you were a co-founder. I actually did not know that. (laughs) I didn't know that either. Little secrets. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) The things you discover. 
Well, you were talking about researching and how your husband helps you with that. What is a fun or interesting skill that you've learned doing research for a historical novel? I think at first it was hard for me because I tend to be shy and introverted. And my husband was very good to help me learn to just seek out people who were experts in certain areas or who had knowledge of the things that I needed to know and to just talk to them like a friend and what I have found over the years is people love to tell what they know and what they love. And so it's been fun to hook up with various people, be it people who are running a dog sled camp up in Alaska or who are doing sailing work on the Great Lakes or whatever. I've had so much fun just connecting with different people and getting them to tell me about the things that they love. And that has helped me so much in my research because then listening to them, picking up their vocabulary, talking about the various technical details, it just has blessed my writing so much. I went a couple of years ago when I was working on the Brookstone Bride series, I went down to Colorado to a trick writing camp that was being given at a ranch down there. And I had just so much fun listening to these women who had been involved since, well, the 40s and 50s and whatnot in trick riding horses. And they talked about various things that they knew and loved and the just the aspect of what a trick rider would go through in an average day. And they were able to assure me that it hadn't changed that much because horses are horses. They need certain types of care and attention. And trick riding involves certain needs like balance and focus and whatnot. And one of the really neat things I learned when I was down there was I was just sitting there watching her give this class. And all of a sudden she tells her students, where your eyes go, that's where your body's going to follow. And I thought, how true and how awesome for even a spiritual lesson for us. Absolutely. Now, is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us? Or perhaps there's something God has laid on your heart that you would like to share with your readers? I just think it's amazing the way God actually uses fiction novels. There are so many people who can be rather critical about spending your time, wasting time reading a story that isn't true but made up or whatever. I've worked really hard to try to keep the details and the information in my stories as accurate as possible for the historical aspects. And if there's a particular job someone's doing, I try to make sure that I I, uh, write that in an accurate manner. I've even stopped and taken time out to learn how to do various things so that I could speak about it more knowledgeably. For instance, spinning. I learned to spin and make yarn and then take that and crochet with it and do different things with it and whatnot. There's just various things that I've taken time to learn to make my characters and the settings and whatnot more accurate. And the accuracy and detail is very important to me simply because I know people are picking up those books sometimes in lieu of reading anything else. And I want to be as accurate as possible. I want my books to entertain you. I talk about my three E's. I want my books to entertain. I want them to educate and I want them to encourage. So with the educational part, 
I have homeschool moms who write to me and tell me, oh, were you, we've read this book. My girls are so hard to get interested in history. And so we took this book and, of yours and read it and found it to be so valuable and it got them interested in certain aspect of history or whatever. And so for me, it's just so important to remember that God can use anything, including a fiction novel. And I've seen the times when I've received letters from readers who have told me how God had met them in a really dark place through one of my books and people who have gotten saved. And it just is such a reminder to me that God will use anything and everything to reach out to his children, to people who are in desperate need of him. And so for me, I think it's important to remember that and as a part of who I am to know that this isn't about me or my writing skills. This is about God using me to work for him and to help other people. That's a very humble approach. And you're right. There are things that we can do just to fulfill the call to write. And it's so amazing to me, like Darcy and Aaron, our second season with a podcast and how many different authors we've spoken with that consider their writing a ministry. So that's just wonderful to see within the industry that it's really about meeting the reader where they're at and exactly encouraging them. Well, let's go ahead and start talking about your latest release, Beyond the Desert Sands, which is book two in the Love on the Santa Fe series. It released July 5th, and I will go ahead and read the back cover copy. After living an opulent life with her aunt for the last few years, the last thing 25-year-old Isabella Garcia wants is to have to celebrate Christmas in the small silver mining town her father and mother founded in the desert. She'd rather stay in California with the handsome Diego Morales, who is courting her. Isabella is further miffed to have to bear the company of Aaron Bailey, a businessman with the Santa Fe Railroad, whom her father has sent to escort her safely home. Aaron finds Isabella spoiled, and she finds him judgmental. But she is surprised to see how much the town of Silvervale has grown and how fragile her father's health has become. Then Diego shows up with news that her aunt has died. Isabella is saddened by the loss of not only her aunt, but also her place of escape. Faced with all these changes, she struggles to sort through her future and who she wants to be. But trouble is brewing, and there are those who hope Isabella stays just as she is, even if it costs her everything. Now, this really just sounds like a story of finding oneself just in time to restore the Garcia family and Isabella as well. In a Goodreads review, Stacey T. Simmons wrote that the story is enmeshed in faith and romance in places within the novel, which are an absolute surprise. So can you share with us something that one of your characters did that surprised you while writing the story? Or maybe just a turn that the story took in that whole writing process that surprised you? Oh, that's a, an interesting question. I don't think I've ever been asked. <laughs> As I work through the writing, I use a detailed chapter synopsis. And a lot of times I hear from people who are seat-of-the-pants writers who don't use a synopsis that they just can't imagine being restricted like that. But I don't marry my synopsis. I use it as a roadmap. And sometimes 
you take a little side journey that you weren't expecting to take. And so that often happens in these stories. And I think that uh, one of the things with this story was the idea of having this the heroine's beloved father die. I wasn't going to do that at first. And it just, as I worked on the story and developed it, I knew that was necessary because of her development and growth and the way that she needed to overcome the past. And so it was a surprise to me that I wrote that into the storyline of having him die and the family deal with his death. All the time, my characters are surprising me. So it's one of those things where sometimes I'll even have to call the editor and say, characters took over the story and hijacked it. So this has to change and this has to change because my editors always know the basic story that I'm going to tell. Oh, wow. But sometimes the characters are like, never mind, we've got a story and we're telling it our way. Thank you very much. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. One time I had actually finished the entire book and then all of a sudden it was as if my hero popped out and said, oh, by the way, I'm an atheist, right? No. And I was floored. I'm just sitting there going, of course he is. Of course, I see this now. And so then had to go back and rewrite the book to include that and to show his redemption and why he was the way he was. Yeah, things like that happen. (laughs) Oh, my gosh, that's funny. But also, wow, that that meant a bit of rework on your part. But hey, what are writers for but to follow the characters around? Exactly. So Beyond the Desert Sands is the second book in your Love on the Santa Fe series. So what is the common component for all of the books in this series? All three of the books stand completely alone, but they all have in common that they're set in New Mexico around the same time period, not exactly, but close, and that they deal with uh, a now ghost town called San Marcial and the Santa Fe Railroad. Okay. Now I know that area is just beautiful. And a lot of times like in looking at history, especially in the expansion to the West, the railroads were just very instrumental in settling different areas. Now, Aaron Bailey works for the Santa Fe Railroad. How does his profession come into play into the story? Well, he works with the leasing of spur lines. And those are the little lines that come off the main line of the railroad to accommodate farms or little towns. And so he handles dealing with people that need spur lines for their businesses or for their cities or towns or whatnot. And since Isabella's father and mother were responsible for creating Silver Vale, a little silver mining town, they needed a spur line and that's how they got connected. And so Aaron Bailey has been a longtime friend of the family and in fact has intimate knowledge of Isabella in her spoiled attitude and days as a younger woman. And it bonds them together in a way that she'd just as soon not have, but oh no, he knows her characteristics and nature. And so they both start out with a little bit of judgment towards each other, for sure. But the story, the focus as most of my stories deal with in forgiving and in letting go of the past. For me, I've had to be forgiven a lot 
and I've had to forgive a lot. And so it's, it's a constant theme in my stories because I think people have sometimes taken a bad attitude towards forgiveness. I once heard a psychiatrist tell someone I cared deeply about that forgiveness wasn't necessary for healing. And I, I beg to differ. I think forgiveness is necessary for healing, but I think you need to understand what forgiveness is. It's not approval. It's not acceptance even. It's a release. It's letting go and giving it to God, letting him have charge of the retribution and actions that might take place or not take place and just letting go. Yeah, no, I agree wholeheartedly. So I know that sometimes I think people are scared to forgive because it feels like it's going to, in doing so, you're setting yourself up to be hurt again. And then I've also heard an argument that everyone kind of deserves to be forgiven, but none of us deserve to be forgiven. (laughs) The only person who can legitimately withhold forgiveness is Christ, and he doesn't do that. But unforgiveness is really just like poison in your bones and in your spirit, and it can harden a lovely person. So we just need to let that go for ourselves and let God be the one who works on that person who's done something wrong. And letting go of those things that we tend to get so bound up with the past that we can't even live in the present, much less look forward to the future. And so the past is so crippling and so often is wrapped up in that inability to forgive or go that it's been critically important to me to include in my stories over and over and over again. And from my reader letters, I can tell that each of the books touches various people in that place where they needed to hear God's word or they needed to just seek other people in the situation of having something to forgive or to be forgiven. And a lot of times, like we talked about earlier, you can't see it. You're just too close to it. But then you read a story and the other character is going through something similar. And you have that aha moment where you see yourself. Yes. And I like what you said. It's not about saying that this was okay or anything like that. It's just, it's just releasing it to God because he can handle it. Yes. Yeah. Well, I am just, I'm just blessed that you were able to come on the show and talk with us, Tracy. Um, Do you have any sort of writerly news that you could share with us? Writerly news. Yes, I'm currently working on a series that's going to debut in March. And this will be what I call a dependent series where each book builds on the other, but yet will pretty much stand alone. Each of the stories will have different characters and some of the old characters, but it's going to be set in Seattle in 1909 at the World Fair that they had there. And it was called the Alaska Yukon Pacific Exposition. That's a mouthful. Yeah. The people who worked there just called it the AYP. (laughs) So because it was a mouthful, but it was a very interesting fair that they wanted to have and show people about life in Alaska, in the Yukon, and talk about the gold rush and whatnot, which really helped to put Seattle on the map in 1898 when the big Yukon gold rush took place because Seattle was the staging place to catch a boat, to get your supplies, and to take off for the Yukon. 
And then also the Pacific Isles, a lot of the different islands, including Japan, the Philippines, they were represented at this World Fair also. And so it was just such a neat and interesting time and event that I thought, oh, this would be too much fun. I have to write about this. (laughs) So that's what's coming up next. And after that, I am planning to do a six book set in Cheyenne, Wyoming and deal with the start of Cheyenne. Oh, there'll be plenty of fodder for interesting conflict there. Oh, definitely. Lots of fun. Well, I'm really excited, especially to read that Seattle series. For our listeners, Tracy has been so kind to offer a copy of Beyond the Desert Sands, book two, in the Love on the Santa Fe Trail series. To enter to win, just check out the giveaway page on our website, historicalbookworm.com. And Tracy, how can our guests connect with you? They can connect with me through my website, which is www.tracypeterson.com. Or they can go find me on Facebook, which is facebook.com backslash author Tracy Peterson. And now a message from American Christian fiction writers, public relations liaison, Cynthia Rukti. Created with Christian fiction reader fans in mind, the 2022 ACFW Story Fest. Come be part of our inaugural year of hosting ACFW Story Fest, formerly the Christian Fiction Readers Retreat. It takes place Thursday, September 8th, 2022, in the afternoon through Saturday, September 10th, at the Hyatt Regency at the Arch in St. Louis, Missouri. Come celebrate story and your favorite Christian fiction authors right on the premises of the ACFW Conference, where hundreds of Christian fiction authors gather each year. You can learn more about StoryFest at www.acfwstoryfest.com. Hope to see you there. Now for a pinch of the past. Today's Pinch of the Past once again visits an historic landmark in my hometown, and we have over 400 years of history, so I'm just going to skim over the top and hit a few highlights in the story of the St. Augustine Lighthouse. Now, I'm imagining that lighthouses in Florida look pretty different than those up here on the Pacific Northwest. Um, I'm really interested. And you took some pictures. Yes, I did get a couple of pictures of the lighthouse and of the keeper's house. I noticed that you posted some pictures of your lighthouse up on the northwest coast and it looks like the lighthouse had the keeper's house attached to it. In this one they are two separate buildings. So I don't know if that is something that's fairly common but that's how this one was set up. Okay neat. Yes. So Originally, it began as a watchtower. Across the bay from the town of St. Augustine is Anastasia Island, and it proved the perfect place for a watchtower looking straight out over the ocean. In 1737, an earlier wooden watchtower was replaced by a 30-foot tower built of coquina, which is the local sedimentary limestone. It's soft when it's quarried, but it hardens in the air, so it was really convenient for building. Mm-hmm. Now, I remember that from when you went to that fort and you put together a pinch of the past. We actually have photos of that. Did you call it Conquina Rock? Yes, Coquina. Coquina Rock. 
We actually have photos of that Coquina Rock wall on on a past pinch of the past on our website. Exactly. Yes, it was also used to build the Castillo San Mar- de San Marcos. So watchmen would use a spar and halyards to signal the town with what direction ships were approaching. Ships from the north might mean enemy British troops because at this point, St. Augustine was part of Florida. It's occupied by Spain. But there weren't any lights. It was just, it was a watchtower and then they signaled what's going on back to the town. But in 1763, at the end of the French and Indian War, the British took control of Florida. So on top of the 30-foot Coquina Tower, they built another 30 feet of wooden construction. And documents and maps from this period mention a lighthouse on Anastasia Island, but really we don't know that much about its operation. Hmm. And so this one was 60 feet tall? Yes, 60 feet tall. And maps like have a picture of a tower with like smoke rising from it or something like that. So maybe just speculating here, maybe they had a fire on top, but we really, there's not a whole lot of documentation about it. But in 1783, just 20 years later, Florida returned to Spanish rule at the end of the American Revolution. So the Spanish took control and they tore down that wooden addition to their tower and refortified the stone construction. And once again, it was used only as a lookout rather than a lighthouse, as far as we know. Huh. I wonder why they did that. I am not sure. I don't know about that. It's You would think that a lighthouse would be more valuable for shipping, but maybe they were like, if they're out in the boat at night, they don't really need to be moving anyway. So, you know, we don't care. (laughs) Now, when the U.S. acquired Florida, they put the watchtower to use as a lighthouse. They used Winslow Lewis Argand lamps and reflector panels, and they cast the light actually far short of what their European counterparts could do. In Europe, they invested in good lighthouses. And in the U.S., they're like, we're going to have the lighthouses, but it took them a little while to actually invest in the good lenses. So in 1852, they built an additional 10 feet on top of the lighthouse. So it's 40 feet tall in total. Okay. Now, is that how tall it is right now? Like the photo of the one that we have for this pincer of the past? No, it is actually a lot shorter. The one now is 165 feet tall. Oh, wow. Yes, yes. So it was in 1853 that the U.S. Treasury finally paid for a frontal lens, which cast the light much farther out to sea. The invention of the frontal lens had revolutionized lighthouses. They came in six orders, which is basically sizes, the first order being the strongest and largest lens. St. Augustine received a fourth order lens. And whale oil fueled the single lamp inside. So it smelled terrible, but got the job done. So yeah. Now, the Confederacy briefly occupied St. Augustine, and when they had it, they stole the lens out of the lighthouse because they were trying to interfere with Union shipping. So it was not until 1867, which is two years after the war ended, that the lens was restored and the keeping of the lighthouse transferred to professional lightkeepers who were basically transplanted from the north as part of Reconstruction because there still might be Confederate sympathizing in the south, and they're like... We're going to have our guys running the lighthouse. Yeah, that makes sense. I think you had a lot of that during the Reconstruction period. Yes, yes, you absolutely did. So it was interesting to me to learn that even went so far as lighthouse keeping. Well, that is all for today. But in our next episode, we will complete the story of the St. Augustine Lighthouse. Time for our bookworm review. This Hallowed Ground by Donna E. Lane. How much can war steal from one man? Georgia, 1861. 
As the tides of war sweep south, Aidan McAllister is drawn north like water up a reed by the inexorable pull to defend his land. After tragedy strikes at Gettysburg, Aidan spirals into unfamiliar dark places of unbridled fury, earning him the nickname the Fourth Horseman. A hero to his fellow soldiers, Aidan's self-loathing consumes him, and every lesson his family taught him crumbles to dust beneath its weight. Aidan returns to the farm to find it ravaged by Yankee patrols. War has taken all perhaps even his soul. Aidan's one chance at redemption sends him west to fight the native people who, like him, are defending their land. His sympathies lie with the people. His lieutenant demands he kill them all. But Aidan's encounter with the Lakota begins his transformational passage to a different life. When love offers Aidan renewed hope, will his past thunder across the plains and steal everything from him again? Dances with Wolves meets the story of Job in this gripping historical epic of tragedy, loss, and redemption. Today's Bookworm Review is brought to you by author and podcast host, Naomi Craig. To learn more about Naomi, visit naomicraig.com. Five Things from This Hallowed Ground by Donna E. Lang. Number one, Mac fights for causes he doesn't believe in for the South, the North, and the Lakota. Number two, He is wounded and spends time in Richmond recuperating with Mary's family who adopt him as a brother. Number three, after the war, Mac enlists for the North to earn back his family land where he is captured by the Lakota. Number four, Civil War, Richmond Fire, Western Expansion, Native American Territory. Number five, I bend my face to my knees and clutch handfuls of hair. Please, dear Lord, spare me of this torment. I don't know what to do. Help me, please. I realize I'm moaning aloud, so I wrap my arms over my head. I don't want to think about what others are thinking of me. We have to sort this out, the two of us. I need answers. I'm Jacob, grappling with God. I'm Job, demanding an explanation. I don't want to need him, but Lord help me, I do. Another fantastic book by Donna Elaine. This book plunges you deep into grief and despair many times and just as many times drags you onto the shore of hope to let you bask in the sun to heal. If you enjoyed the TV series, Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman and long books, you should read this. This story is real and raw. You will need tissues. Darcy, what have you been up to? Honestly, not a whole lot, Um, just mostly work, but my sister has a job in downtown St. Augustine, and she works Sunday afternoons. It's usually pretty quiet, so this last Sunday, I went and hung out with her. And of course, I got stir crazy, so I popped over to the ice cream shop, and I got frosted coffees. I'm Ice cream is my thing, so um, these these coffees are made with cold brew and whatever ice cream flavor you want. It was delicious. And then I popped down to the antique store and was looking at some stuff. The coolest thing I found might have been an inlaid music box table. It looked like a tiny little end table, and the top you know, had a beautiful little inlaid pattern, but the whole tabletop opened, and that's what turned on the music box and it played this like really sweet haunting melody super cool oh that sounds so nice how about you duh my summer's just been full of work (laughs) (laughs) and travel and oh some some sad moments my grandma passed away about oh two weeks ago and so 
that was just sad coming to the the end of her life. But um, she was a Christian, and she I know she's in heaven. So yeah, we had a nice little service for her, just kind of honoring her, and got to see some family. So that's always some. That's always nice. So yeah. And it's cool that she lived long enough that your kids could meet her. I didn't get a chance to meet any of my great-grandparents, and I always kind of wish that I could have. So that's that's cool. Yeah, she was 87 years old. So, you know, growing old, it's a blessing. It is. And I'm really glad that, that she blessed our lives. You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.